now. I'm on? Yes? Okay. Well, I, I uh, asked Victoria what her secret was and she wouldn't tell me. <laughs> I said that I'd begin with questions. I'm going actually to be quite clear with the time and I'm going to um, finish at quarter two so that then there might be questions because I think that what I'm dealing with here might be a little more pertinent to people. I wanted to do that kind of foundational thing about change and tradition and understand it. And now I want to, I want to suggest that this is not a blueprint, but, but these are things which we have to deal with. And the first is that congregations have to become communities. We presume in the Christian church that those who gather know each other. And that was true in the early days of settling in, in Australia and rural parishes in England or wherever. But now people crisscross a city or a town or countryside to get to the church of their choice where they might stay for an hour and leave and not know each other. God never gives worship to strangers. The Passover was not given to strangers, but to families and to those who lived nearby who were single. In the New Testament, Jesus calls people in to be his family. Those who do God's will are my brother and sister and mother. And in the New Testament, the people who gather to worship in the Acts of the Apostles are those who have often shared a common History, the ones who are Jews or Gentiles, a common present experience, they are now Christian, and a common aspiration that the gospel will go into all lands. And, and the, the, this is not at all being pessimistic and realistic. The fact is that in many churches, people don't know each other. Uh, if I take an example, the Diocese of Gloucester, big diocese in England with two major cities, Cheltenham and Gloucester, lots of towns and lots of rural areas. And I'm working with 180 priests and curates in that diocese, and I said, asked to speak on St. Paul and his understanding of the body. I said, there are two characteristics. The one is that the body is differently gifted. And then I say to these people, if as you look at your congregation, you realize people have different gifts, please stand. Everyone stands. I says, now the next thing about the body is that it has, it is connected. It's a joined up body. One part suffers, other parts feel the pain. If one part rejoices, other parts share the happiness. Now, not as people see you in front of the liturgical assembly, but as they relate to each other. Keep standing if the congregations you serve are joined up bodies. Two-thirds of these priests and curates sat down. This is where we are, and we have to decide whether we're going to continue with this or whether there's a, there are means by which we can begin to get people to, uh, to integrate with each other. And there's no, there's no one answer. I remember, uh, I'm going to give some examples, but I'm just remembering once uh, meeting three Lutheran priests from the USA who were in Iona, and I said to them, what, what do you guys really want for your churches? And within a short time, they had agreed that they wished they were churches where people could speak about what makes for the common good. I said, what do you mean by that? And they said, well, particularly in the USA, everything is Republican or Democrat. So if somebody says we should paint the ladies' toilet uh, pink and he's Republican, a Democrat will say, no, I think we should paint it lime green. Everything is a kind of proxy war and people very seldom talk about the common good. Now, with this in mind, I'm teaching a course for... Uh, doctor of ministry students and I say to them what I'd love you to do is to take an issue of current concern and also of biblical concern gather eight people who owe you no favors 
and who are very different, meet with them over six nights and talk with them about this issue of biblical and social concern. You're the people who've got biblical foundations and knowledge. Share that with the folk and see where you go. And I'd given people a range of options. Well, one man who was in his last job, he was 64, he was about to retire, he thought, I've never actually talked with my congregation about ecology. It's not a word which was in his vocabulary or in the vocabulary of very many Americans. And he said, so I decided I would look at the Bible and see what it says about the earth. He says, I was quite astounded. There's stuff in Jeremiah and the prophets and Isaiah and the Psalms and Genesis and Paul, Jesus. So he said, I kind of amassed quite a lot of this and brought these eight folk together and said, can we spend a couple of nights just looking at this? What do we see in this? And then how does that impact on our life? Now, when he wrote his, he'd write a kind of small thesis, he talked about a church which had almost exploded with potential. He said, no, we looked at this stuff. I produced a kind of draft of what we had discovered, shared it with the congregation, and then we, we thought of where we will go next. Not where do I think we'll go next, but where do we think we'll go next? And people began to, to think, well, we can change our energy policy because we are quite flagrant in this church of having lights on, and they're not lights which save energy. And then somebody else said, we've got a plot of land outside. Nothing grows in it. It's just there. Why don't we use that in order that people who are, say, unemployed can grow vegetables? And these can be either sold or given away. He said, we now have a farmer's market which meets in our uh, courtyard. It's there for cars to park on a Sunday. It's empty the rest of the week. Now on a Wednesday, it's full of stalls of people who have a farmer's market and sell goods that are grown uh, regionally. He said, we began to pray for the earth and to look at how we relate to this planet in which God has placed us, and we're looking for songs which enable us to sing about our care for creation and not just that all things are bright and beautiful. And he says, continually I have people coming up to me with suggestions as to what we might do. This all begins where there's a conversation, non-judgmental, between people about what matters to them and what matters to God. Now let me take another example. Uh, in Glasgow, and I'm trying hard to avoid you know, what I have done but rather what people can do. Because too much of ministry is clergy-centered and the congregation don't contribute to it. So here's this pastor outside Glasgow. He says, I'd like you to take my elders. It's a Presbyterian church. There's about 30 of them. And, and, and lead, lead a retreat for a day. I said, what do you want me to do? He said, well, do something practical in the afternoon. You know, maybe something about music or whatever, or scripture. And in the morning, I would just like them to talk to each other. So I'd never done this before. We meet for coffee, we have prayer, and then I say, uh, friends, I'm going to tell you a bit of my testimony. I'm dividing my life into four. I was then 56. And that meant I had four stages of 14 years. And I said, I'm going to tell you something about my walk with God in each of these quarters. So I tell a story about the woman in whom I first saw God, Ina Carey, our Sunday school teacher, when I was only three or four. And, and what impact that's had on my whole life. And then I talked about how between the ages of 14 and 28, I, I heard somebody talk about salvation as that which was of the soul, of course, but also of the world, that God did not so love John Bell, and God did not so love Presbyterians, and God did not so love Christians, but God so loved the world. The cosmos 
cosmos is up for redemption. That means everything. It means money. It means the planet. It means politics. All of that is there to be redeemed. That changed my understanding of faith entirely. The third sector between 28 to 40, oh no, I've got ahead of myself, 28 to 42, oh, that's right. Um, I, that was meeting people from other parts of the world, working with a South African who had had to leave his country because of the uh, disruptions in the schools, uh, meeting people who were asylum seekers from other parts and discovering that God was bigger than Scotland that God was bigger than the English language, that other people had insights into faith and into the Bible, which I, from a Western perspective, had never thought about. And the last 14 years was when my mother became ill and eventually died. And her last year was a very hard year with a hitherto undiagnosed illness and her not knowing why she was forgetting things. It wasn't dementia, it was something entirely different. And then you have to ask questions that other people ask. You know, why does it happen to her? A woman of prayer, of commitment, a woman who loved to, to be with people who are ill, to pray with them, to sit with people who are dying. Why does this, a year of misery, happen to her? And then one becomes angry with God or with life. If you're honest, if you're dishonest, you try to see, you, know, you, avoid, you avoid the anger in your soul. If you're honest... Like Jesus, when Lazarus died, you become indignant. That's the Bible. That's the gospel. So I share this. It takes 20 minutes. And then I say to these, these people, I'd like you now to go into this place where we are, this center, and go in groups of three or four. And for the next hour and a half, after you filled in this sheet, and I gave everyone a sheet of paper in which things were divided in four, a line in four, and I gave them five minutes silently to think of their stories or non-stories for the four sectors of their life, whether they were 80 or whether they were 40 or younger, and then into groups of three or four. And for the next hour and a half, just tell each other about your walk with God. When people came back at lunchtime, it was clear the quality of relationship had altered. People came a bit, you know... Um, perhaps suspicious, they had no idea what they were coming to. But at lunchtime, there's this depth of conversation and friendliness. And two weeks later, the minister writes to me to say that discernibly, the atmosphere among these people had changed. But before they went away that Saturday afternoon, a man came up and said, he said, you know, I have been in this church since I was a boy. And there's a man who's also an elder. I have been in the same room as him at our elders' meetings for 35 years. He has been my sworn enemy. If he said black, I would say white. And I find myself in the same group as him this morning. And I realize I have never known this man. I've never known what he believes. I've never known what he's come through. And in these hour and a half session, in that hour and a half session, I think I have become to, I've, I've begun to love him. Hitherto he was the enemy, and now he's the one who I love. Now, what had happened? People had just spoken to each other. For people of my tradition, Presbyterians, uh, talking about your faith does not come easily. We've, it's much more, it was much more easily for me as a 20-year-old to talk to Roman Catholics about their faith than to talk, talk with my own people. And we have to find ways in which that's possible. Now, I'll just take one other picture. Here's a Roman Catholic church in Brussels. 
and a friend of mine, a lovely woman, uh, who then would be in her mid-70s, she uh, said to me, would you like to come to my church? And uh, her name was Gabby Deville, and the church was the Beguinage in the middle of Brussels, surrounded by warehouses. The, house, the local housing area had gone, but warehouses and offices were there. Ancient church, no seats, or rather seats, but no pews. And so for the vigil mass, four o'clock Saturday afternoon, people are in a circle, about 40. And the priest is one of the people in the circle. And I didn't know what this man was doing because it seemed to me that everyone else in that circle was leading the mass. I mean, he did pronounce absolution. And then later he read the gospel. And after he'd read the gospel, he said to the, the, the people round about him, he said, now, if this is the gospel of Jesus Christ, which is meant to change our lives, how are our lives going to change now that we've heard the gospel? And then he went. And people turned to each other because they trusted him and he trusted them. And they began to talk to each other about what the impact of that gospel was or should be in their lives for maybe six minutes. And then he says, now, without giving away any confidential information, are there, are there any things that we've heard or said that it would be good for all of us to share? And about four people offer something. And he's like a grandfather accepting the gifts of his grandchildren. This old man says something. I don't understand it well. My French is not good enough, but I can get the gist of it. And he says, oh, Henri, of course, you have been, you've been in business all your life. That's an insight that most of us would not have. That's that helps us with this, this story from the gospel. And then a, a young girl speaks, and he says, Oh, but uh, Marie-Hélène, you, you've, you, you're speaking like a mother, because you've got children, and you see something in this story which, which I cannot see. And then he says, Now, friends, you know I'm a priest, I'm a Jesuit, I read books. What I have is no better than what you've discovered. But from my reading, I find two or three things which might, might also help us to understand the passage. And he just speaks for maybe three minutes. But he has honored what people have discovered. He's not saying, that's not quite right. He's not saying, well, um, we used to think that way, but we don't. He doesn't, he doesn't make judgment. But he opens a couple of things from his reading. And then he, th he has this lovely prayer in which he thanks God for how the community have opened the scriptures to each other. Beautiful, beautiful. When I say that to my fellow clergymen in my denomination, they say, what if somebody says something wrong? And I say, does that mean to say you always say something right? You know, his ordination, by having a white dog collar, that's guaranteed that everything you say is totally accurate. Or is it that God is able, through the experience of lay people, to see things in the scripture which we cannot see because we keep our nose in books? Here's a woman called Margaret in a church in Glasgow where my colleague and I were asked to, to help leadership. And we're opening the Bible and we're looking at a story of the hemorrhaging women. And we had we'd begun a, a way of allowing people to not depend on the intellectual approach only, but to speak from experience. And we've asked people to go into a big room next door where there are 200 cards black and white photographs, commercial, from Europe, Australia, America. 
all with women. And having read the story of the hemorrhaging woman, they have to go into the room and find the hemorrhaging woman. Well, they expect Bible pictures, you know, children's Bible, so that every woman looks like Queen Victoria's niece. But these are women from the 20th century, old and young, and they have to find the hemorrhaging woman. And they come back, these 10 people who we're working with, and go into small groups and argue with each other, who's the real hemorrhaging woman? And they who never would talk about the Bible are suddenly begin to quote the Bible to each other as to why their choice was better than that choice. And I'm looking at Margaret, who's 57, and she's this picture of a, a woman of about 24 who's running. And I says to her, Margaret, why did you choose that? And she says, well, why not? Oh, I says, no, I'm, I'm just wondering why you chose that. She says, well, if you read the Bible, I thought, well, if you read the Bible, it's, it, it, it says that um, it doesn't say any age. You think she's too young? I said, yeah, I think she's too young. I'm thinking maybe 37, 38. She said, well... If she had started menstruation when she was 12 and she'd been bleeding for 12 years, she could be 24. Oh, I said, I suppose that's right. Huh? I said, but this woman's kind of running, running, running. Energy. And Margaret says, well, if you just remember the Bible, it says that these people were tight packed around Jesus. It says it twice, that they were crammed around him. So she says to get into this crowd, she would have to kick and bite and push people out the road in order to get to touch Jesus. So this woman is a woman who has energy in her. And then she lifts her finger, which I knew would be dangerous. And she says, and listen, if you, had been, if you had been hemorrhaging for 12 years and this was your last chance, you would find energy you never knew you had. Believe you me. Well, I was chastened. So I went back home and I opened up the books to see what the, what the books said. The commentators who are paid to study Greek and Hebrew didn't say anything about her age. But it did say that any woman who was bleeding, who touched men, contaminated them. And here's a woman who is prepared to contaminate any number of men in order that she meets Jesus. And when he sees her, he says, your faith has made you whole. This is not a passive faith. This is a faith which has found determination to look for him, and then he finds it. So this woman had found in the gospel things that me with my alleged learning and fondness for books, could never discover. And that comes through conversation. Now, the second thing, and at this point you should have diagrams, but that's okay, you can get them when you leave. The second thing is to do with buildings, because we are the inheritors of buildings which either will dominate us or we will tell them what to do. The church I used to go to, if it was, if it was that shaped, uh, that sat 1,200 people at a congregation of about 45. This is how they sat. It was the body of Christ with acne. <laughs> a wee spot here and a wee spot there. And that building, thank you, these have been passed around. You don't need to spend much time looking at them. That building was telling the people, I have been here since 1847. I have the second slimmest steeple in Europe. I have the highest pulpit stairs in Scotland. I do not have a table, I have a, mo a marble altar, even though I'm in a Presbyterian church. I have one of the largest organs in the west end of Glasgow. I have a gallery and seating capacity for 1,200 people. Architecture students come here to admire what I'm like, and you'll better behave. And the congregation were being dominated by the history of what actually was a monument to the ability of Presbyterians to fall out with each other. 
And what the congregation had to do was to decide, we will tell the building what has to happen. The building and all its pews will not tell us. So what you see there, very quickly, is a potted history of church buildings. One, and one is the pre-Reformation Catholic Church. I mean, don't think about cathedrals. Think about local churches in Europe. They're that shape. The apse at the top has the altar against the wall, and the priest faces away from the people. And they stand at the back, that's the crosses, because they only receive the Eucharist once a year. They're not worthy to receive it more often. Reformation comes along. The apse at the top is cut off. It becomes a schoolroom. And the, uh, the pulpit and the table go to the long wall. And they're there because people now believe the Bible should be in our midst, it should be opened in our midst, interpreted in our midst, and the table is for all God's family who gather round. There are no seats in the post-Reformation church. People bring stools, or they sit on the floor or stand at the back. Number three is what happens when the landlord or the, or the local council have responsibility for the church, and they build a kind of a transept opposite the pulpit because they pay the preacher. And he, whether he's the parish priest or whether he's the, the, the congregational minister, has to do, to a certain extent, their bidding. So they sit in pews and judgment on him. Number four is when the Oxford movement begins to say, well, this is nice, you know, sitting around, looking at each other. We've lost a sense of mystery. So they put the altar or table and the pulpit at the front. People sit in straight rows and people decide to sit at the back. So Protestants sit in a way in which their ancestors objected at the Reformation. Meanwhile, the Catholic Church begins, and we heard this this morning from the priest, begins to move the altar until it and the ambo from which he preaches is in the center of the, of the community. But behind this is, is the whole notion that we have to decide, either we tell the building what we have to do, or the building tells us. Many church buildings are places which are forbidding to the outsider because they have no idea what happens inside. I, I discover this in Philadelphia. I always ask people if I'm working with a congregation, what, this, what do people say about this building? And in Philadelphia, a huge church, Presbyterian, the congregation who met, who are growing after being down to eight for about 10 years. They're now about uh, 60, 80 under the leadership of a very dynamic pastor. And at the meeting after the service, the people said, well, people said, they still say it, we have no idea what goes on. It could be a place to incarcerate asylum seekers. It could be a Masonic temple you cannot see in. Solid walls and four sides. Who would go in there? I'm walking down a street with the Archdeacon of Southwark, which is the Southern Anglican Diocese in London, and uh, as we're walking down, we come to this church where I was going to spend the morning with priests and curates from the diocese or the archdeaconry. And uh, uh, Nick, who's the archdeacon, uh, says, what do you think of the church? It was a red brick building built probably in the 50s. And I said, well, it looks okay. I said, but you see that sign? I hate these. I hate these with a passion. Big notice board, you know, about, I don't know, two meters by a meter and a half on uh, stilts and glass fronted and I've seen these all over the place you go up to them people stick photographs in they curl up at the edges half the people in the photographs are dead the notices are out of date you know what happened 
1973 rather than what happens in 2003. And you look into this, this thing and you see dead wasps and butterflies who've never been able to get out. And as we get up, to my astonishment, all these pictures have recently been taken. Pictures of older people laughing with each other, a baby being baptized, kids playing in the playgroup, people receiving the Eucharist, people having a conversation, intent conversation with each other. And later I met the priest and I said, well, what are you doing with this big notice board? He said, well, when I came to this parish, I realized that perhaps only 2% of people who live in the vicinity of the church have ever been in it. And if you look from outside, you cannot see in. No way. Uh, we've got opaque windows. We've got oak doors that are closed much of the week. So people were scared to come in. They had no idea. And in a generation where people don't grow up in the church, most of them, we kind of presume they should come. But if they don't know what it's like, it's an impediment. He said, since we've put this notice board up, we change it every two months. And you would not believe the number of people who have come here, some for weddings, some for baptism, but also the number of people who felt able to come and to stay when they see that what happens inside and the people inside are the same as they pass in the street. So let me, I'm moving fairly quickly on, um, mention the other things. And these are no less important. I'm not putting it in you know, high or low order. But it may also be pertinent, just as we can ask, what does the, what does the, the building say to people? You know, because buildings speak. A law court, if you go into a law court and it has Mickey Mouse wallpaper, you'd think, this does not speak of serious judgment under the law. Buildings speak. What does, the church, what does the church say to the outsider who's never been in? Is it forbidding or welcoming? But also, what is the rumor which the congregation believes about itself? Because we will fulfill the rumors we spread about ourselves. I go to this church, the pastor has had a breakdown. It's the second Sunday before Christmas. And somebody phones and says, can you go to this church? I walk in the door and this lovely wee lady says, oh, Mr. Bell, I think I should tell you we're an aging congregation. Now, I didn't say anything then. But now, if people say we're an aging congregation, I say, no, just tell me exactly, at what rate are you aging? Because in most places, it's a day at a time. Is this a kind of fast-track church? Where you're 48 one Sunday and you're 84 the next? Is that what it means? Is that what it means? <laughs> and people mean we've got a lot of people who are over 60, over 65, as if, as, if you, as if you should be cut down, you know, given a pill so you disappear and don't become a problem. And then one has to say, what is God's understanding of, of older people? That they're aging? Is that all? That they're retarded? That they all look back? Is that God's rumor about old people? You go back to the beginning of the Jewish Christian tradition and you find that there's a man of a hundred in a garden talking to angels, as men sometimes do. Maybe for that age, maybe that's what you do, talk to angels in a garden. And his wife is a, called Sarah and she's 90 and she's in the kitchen making food, as women sometimes are. And she overhears an angel in the garden saying to her husband, I'll be back within a year, by which time your wife will be pregnant. I had a baby. Well, she's 90. Most women, given that news, would at least smile. <laughs> in fact, if you see a 90-year-old woman laughing, the chances are she's pregnant. <laughs> and then, 
nine months, a year later, the smile is on the other side of her face. And she has brought into life a child, and she calls the child Isaac, which means laughter, because she says, God has made laughter for me. And when we begin the Christmas readings, we read of Zechariah and uh, Anna, an elderly couple, childless, and they become the parents of John the Baptist. And it's a funny story because her husband, who is a priest who's talked all his life, doesn't believe this will happen, so God silences him. And you can imagine, you know, people saying to him, what's happened to you? <laughs> God does not destine people to be highly uh, conservative with a small c because they get older. God calls those who are older to be those who will be the enablers of the new thing that needs to happen. I have great faith in grandparents, far more than in parents, because grandparents can see beyond the immediate needs which the child presents to his or her parent, and perhaps can see some things that need to be supplemented and can do that in an entirely different way. And those who are of an age in the church which is past 60 have to be the enablers of the new thing because it's those, it's the young who see visions and the old who dream dreams and the middle-aged have to listen to the young and listen to the old. That's the Bible. That's the Bible. So there's something about, about how we, the rumor which we spread will affect what we do. If people, if people say, you know, we don't have much money in this church, well, who's going to go? You'd be scared you might be fleeced at the door. Somebody will take your wallet. We don't have much money, but you look as if you've got quite a lot. Is that the rumor that attracts people? Or we don't have many young people? So who, what young person is going to go if the rumor is we don't have many young people? It's very interesting that at the beginning of the book of Revelation, which is not, you know, everybody's favorite book of the New Testament, there are letters to seven churches. And these letters are actually, if you look at them, Letters which say, this is what you believe about yourself. This is the rumor you believe about yourself, that you spread about yourself. But here's the truth. And sometimes the truth is much less than the rumor. And sometimes the truth is much more. And people are either reprimanded by the writer or they're encouraged, particularly when they don't think they're doing well. There's a church in Glasgow, which was the aging congregation. Or he would have said that. And this girl who used to be our secretary went there to be the musician. Very bright, kind of four feet, 11, red-haired. And she goes to this church, which has traditional music. Of course it has. And she begins to teach people some songs from other parts of the world. So they always end their morning service singing an Ameni that comes from the northeast of South Africa. Whole congregation, they sing it in two parts. Amen, 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 amen. They love that. And they sing other songs from other places. And the pastor notices that there have been a slight increase in the number of people who come whose accent or whose dress suggests they might not have originated in Glasgow. And then he discovers that some of these older women in the church, when they're in the supermarket, will be standing waiting to be served at the till and they might be behind somebody whose color or whose accent suggests they don't originate in Glasgow. And they'll say to them, excuse me, you should come to our church because we sing African songs. 
Now, it might be a Pakistani they're speaking to. It doesn't matter. You know? <laughs> so the rumor changes from we're the church that's elderly to we're the church where other people who are not born in Scotland can come. And people feel, this is a church I can go to. If we cannot say anything good about ourselves, then we should not speak. If some people were to speak of their dentist the way they speak of their church, then the dentist would begin out of business. We deal with the rumor, and we deal also with, with the Bible and ways in which we can begin in worship to experience and engage with this word of God. I don't have the time which would take me to go into this in depth, but sometimes I feel that when people read the Bible in church, I'd prefer them to read a telephone directory from back to front. Now, this is the lively oracle of God, and it sounds quite dull. You know, we come to hear the gospel, and Jesus says to, Mary says to Jesus, Jesus, I think the wine has run out. Mother, my time has not yet come. I mean, is that the way they talk to each other? Or was it more, Jesus, I think the wine has run out. Mother, my time has... I mean, is that the way they do it? How do these people speak to each other? How does the gospel become incarnate if we read it with the enthusiasm with which we'd read an instruction as to how to build your own coffin? And, and we have to discover, you know, even, I think, to the extent of, of going away from the lectionary, I, I find it very difficult. I am, I'm not a, a lectionary fundamentalist, but I use it a lot. And some Sundays I think, why are we reading this? Do you know, you'll, you'll see, so, the, so he was walking along the road. Well, who is he? Where does this come from? If there's no context, can we understand this word? If there's no clue... And particularly, if here are three passages, Hebrew Scriptures, Old Testament, Epistle, and Gospel, the presumption of, of the laity is there must be something that ties them up. There's nothing. Sometimes there is, but the lectionary is not there to trace a golden cord between these three readings and the psalm. The lectionary was devised so that people over three years would hear the major stories of Christian faith and the major insights of Scripture. That's why it's there. And it sometimes matches, but often it doesn't. And, and I'm, I'm, I'm amazed that Anglican and Catholic priests who do theological acrobatics to make these three things connect. I was this parish in, I think it was Norwich Diocese, and this priest says, this morning, as we heard the readings, I'm sure that many of us would think there was nothing in common between the, the Hebrew Scripture and the Psalm and the letter of St. Paul and the Gospel. Well, let me assure you there is, because each one of these Scriptures was first written down by someone who had a mother. So today I'm going to talk about mothers. Well, <laughs> where, where, does that, where, does that come, where does that come from? So, the final thing, because I'm, I'm moving up to quarter two, is that, I mean, I, there's lots of other things I could say, but I, wanted, I just want to touch on how, uh, to see the potential in hospitality is to do nothing other than to follow Jesus, who has this incredible ability 
to be hospitable to people, which means not to expect them to fit into a straitjacket, but to meet them where they are and to woo them into faith. And, you know, I think for many people, hospitality is what enables them to come to church and enables them to stay there. Uh, I could think of any number of churches which have taken this on, but let me, let me get, just cite two. One's called the Budley Tabernacle, and it's a terrible title, the Budley Tabernacle. It's where the Sunday School movement began in England. It's a United Reformed Church. It was previously congregational. And it was built in terms of architecture according to the theology of the Congregationalists. So there are two aisles. There's a kind of bench of pews on this side and on that side, and a bench of pews in the middle. Two aisles. No two people with a 24-inch waist can pass each other in these aisles because this church was built so that no bride and groom or bride and her father would come in together and no coffin would come into this church. These were Catholic and Anglican things. This church was not going to deal with coffins and if people got married, they'd be married in the vestry or in the manse. And the pastor says, would you like to... Uh, spend a, an after, a afternoon or a day with my congregation, do some workshops and preach on the Sunday. So I arrive there Friday night. Uh, we go into the church and um, you know there's this slim gallery all around, not much space at the front, pew, 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 narrow things. And one of the workshops I have to do is on space. So much of what I say comes from my colleague who's an architect by training. And part of that involves people shutting their eyes so I invite these lovely folk, I mean, there's about 100 people there, to close their eyes and to think of this space without any chairs. And I said, now let's just imagine we're having a meeting where there's only 12 people in this space. So we have 12 people in a circle, and then we're going to have a breakout for smaller conversations. So in each corner, we have four chairs. People go easily to a corner. They come back in, they sit in the middle, and the meeting ends. And I said, now keep your eyes shut and imagine that there's a wedding of an elderly couple. They've both been widowed. They're both in their 80s. They've met another partner for the rest of their life. They don't want a big wedding and, and they don't want to feel as if they're in an empty space. So in a corner of the church, we put two chairs for the couple and across from them a chair for the pastor and then there's maybe four friends and they sit on either side. So everybody looks at each other and it's a very intimate space and people can hear each other, and there's no awkwardness. And then I said, and let's imagine it's a big wedding. Imagine 120 guests, and the bride and groom want the couple to witness their wedding, and they're quite keen that people should see them taking vows. So we put 80 chairs on either side in three rows. They all look into the middle. The bride comes in with her father, if that's the case, goes down to the front, and she and her husband sit facing the congregation who they've invited. And a couple of other things, and then people go home. That was just to allow people to imagine, imagine possibilities. Well, the next evening, after evening worship, I've been preaching, and the pastor says, you go back to my manse with my wife, John. I want to talk to somebody. So I go back, and he's maybe half an hour later, and he comes in, and he says to his wife, he says, you'll never guess. Donald has said okay. She says, really? He said okay. Now, I had no idea who he was or what he had said okay to, but then he explains. 
The unknown to me, this pastor had been keen that the congregation should rethink how they use their space. But there was a level of resistance, particularly from this nice guy called Donald, who was not, you know, uh, an awkward guy, but he was the treasurer, and he felt the tradition of 1790, the Sunday school movement begins in this church. We have to keep it like that because it's a historic building. And he had no intention of being at these workshops, but he came in at 11 o'clock just when I was starting this thing about space. So he's with the congregation, shutting their eyes, imagining the place differently. And then I talk about what would happen if there's a big wedding. And he remembers that next year his daughter is getting married. And she's a big girl. And they would not very easily get down this wee narrow aisle. And she's wanting over 100 people at her wedding. And he thinks, oh, well, is that da, da, da. So he says to the, the pastor the next night, I've been thinking about it, and with regard to changing the church, go ahead. I will not resist any longer. I go back there two years ago. The building is open five days a week. People discover that you can't, take a buggy with a child in it into the coffee shops, but you can take it into the church. The women in that church are great bakers, so they have coffee and cakes every morning, five mornings. Evenings, it's different organizations come to the church, and the congregation has grown because they have told the space what they want to do, whereas previously the space told them. But finally, it's a church in the middle of Scotland, and they have a new pastor who, for reasons which he doesn't know, said, I think we should talk about hospitality in this church. And a woman among his leaders says, that would be a good idea. She says, because I notice when people come to our church that some of the guys, it's always men who stand at the door and shake hands, they look as if they've got lockjaw. They're the most unpleasant people to meet on a Sunday morning. We need to have people standing there who like people. You know, and we should, have, we should have a teenager there. This is not just a church for people like these old guys. And we should have a woman there. She says, in fact, I've just finished being a, a primary headmistress. I have time. Can I do an inventory of hospitality? So she looks at where the congregation meets, if they meet, uh, uh, a whole range of, of other ways in which hospitality is expressed or not expressed. And when she produces her report, there's some... Dramatic things, she says, you know, we invite people to enjoy it, to, to, to meet with us, with the congregation, for fellowship and hospitality after service. We never tell them where, where that's happening. It's downstairs, you can't see it. You have to go down a, a stair. We never tell people that. And if they make their way down there, nobody talks to them because they're new and everyone's talking to their friends. And we offer people third-rate coffee and we have a biscuit tin. When you open it, the biscuit bends because it's got damp over the last week. And this is Christian hospitality. So she, she challenges that. She says, you know, we have a young people's group. It's been going for ages. There's nothing exciting happens there. If we want people to be excited about their faith, we have to do something dynamic. It's the only church in Scotland which raised money to let its youth group go to Malawi to discover how people in an impoverished region believe in God. Great, great, transformative thing for these kids. And, and, and gradually, people begin to you know, change the rumor that we are the church 
which is hospitable. We're the church which welcomes people. And they do transform a great deal. They have small groups that meet only for four weeks, maybe to talk about faith. It's not a long, you know, we'll start an organization which will last until eternity. Ad hoc things happen. And the proof that it was working was when two Sundays before Christmas, in, in Scotland we sometimes have a thing called a ch- children's gift service where kids bring gifts that they no longer need but are serviceable and they put them in front of the altar on the second Sunday before Christmas and the social work pa- uh, department delivers them. Well, the church had got busier. It was very busy and on that day it was packed. And a, a person who we would call a worthy in Scotland, a kind of eccentric guy, had begun to come to church. He'd never been for a long, long while, but he'd heard that this church was welcoming people. He used to sit in the middle of the town and he'd talk to everybody in a loud voice because he was deaf. And the other thing distinctive about him was that because of a war wound, he had a glass eye. So his name is, is, is Jimmy McPherson. That's not his real name, but I'm using it at the moment. So Jimmy McPherson comes to this church. He's been going for a couple of months. People welcome him because everyone knows him in that town. And he comes on the children's gift service, second before Christmas, and he's a bit late and the church is packed and where he normally sits is full. And so he takes him a wee while to find somewhere that's where he can get a seat. And he's got his hymn book and he gets into the seat and he opens the hymn book and he turns up the number and then he's about to sing and the hymn ends. So, he, so he's a bit flustered and people sit down. So he sits down. The minister says, let us pray. His head goes forward and his glass eye falls out. And a woman sitting near him thinking, we, we, have, the ch- we have to welcome people, but hospitable. She bends down and picks up this object and gives it to Jibby, who says in his loud st- stage whisper, that's not my eye, it's a mint imperial. <laughs> but at least it was proving that hospitality was working. Okay, now I'm going to stop here, and if, if folk have a question they want to ask or a comment they want to make, then, then that can be shared now. If you'd like to raise your hand, we have a couple of roving mics. Oh, a roving mic. Oh, here we are. Here's the microphone coming, sir. I'd like to, because we talk about change, I would like to propose that we make a, a dramatic change, that instead of me getting up at quarter to five tomorrow, <laughs> I get up at quarter to nine, and the 9.30 goes to 7.30. Oh. <laughs> I think there's a level of personal investment in that. <laughs> Yeah, okay. Anyone else? Somebody at the back there, thank you. I think uh, we've all had the experience of uh, trying to introduce change uh, to the church because we think it's a good and noble and worthy thing to do and people uh, who are the receivers uh, of that change um, go, well, look, I'm just not interested in any of this at all and you can hear that immortal phrase, if you do that, I'm out. Yeah. Um, do you have any words of wisdom uh, to deal uh, with these sort of circumstances? Well, let me tell you, that this is a true incident. Um, I'm not saying this is the ideal answer, but I think this is quite salutary. 
When I was a student, I had to sit, I was allowed to go to the meetings of the, of the elders in the churches where I was attached. You know, I'd preach every, once a month and I'd visit people for maybe six hours a week. And I would go to the elders' meeting and uh, I had to sit silently. I couldn't say anything. So it was very interesting just to have to suppress, you know, what you felt was important and listen to the people who were in charge. And there was a meeting where they were discussing the youth group. We had a very interesting youth group. I met on a Sunday night. We could have over 100 people. About 50 or more would come from the high school, the years 11 and 12, and about 50 came from the parish. And these were kids who came in as a result of a parish visitation where we went round all the houses in the parish and said, look, we are the parish church. This is what we do, and you're welcome. And these kids come in who had been turfed out of the swimming baths and the theatres, the cinemas, for bad behaviour, and they came to our youth group. Very different kind of um, kids. Not used to high academic conversation. And we were very keen that they should stay and that it would be a place of integration. And it was. It was a, it was a, it was a very interesting uh, time. But the, the church was slightly concerned because it was a Presbyterian church and many of these kids were Catholics. And the town I grew up in is one in which there was a level of suspicion, if not animosity. I grew up in a council, a social housing street, 52 houses, and the six families were Catholic. The others were nominally Protestant. Every woman in that house would have candles, including my mother. She had blue and pink and red and yellow candles. But Protestant women wouldn't light the candles. That was what Catholics did. So when there was a power cut, it was a spiritual crisis. What do you do? Light the candles and become Catholics? Or just <laughs> pray, pray for the electricity men to get the electricity back on? So there, that, that, was, that was there, and it was a very strong in this congregation. And several times they had, you know, talked about having these children in our church hall, these children, meaning, meaning Catholic, Catholic young people, Catholic teenagers. Well, one night I was in the elders' meeting, and there had been some kind of disturbance. Somebody had written a swear word, I think, on a wall in the church hall, and somebody found it and made a great fuss, as if it was a word they'd never seen before in their life. And this came to the elders' meeting. And one of the, the fairly wealthy men in the congregation stood up and said, I think that this sh we should bring everything to a head here because we've talked about, you know, these young people coming into our church hall for far too long. And I just want to say this, that if this continues, these young people in our hall, I am going to withdraw my covenant. Now, that was his pledge to the church. I'm going to withdraw my financial covenant. And the minister said, Mr. Jackson, that's not his name. Mr. Jackson, the Church of Jesus Christ will not be blackmailed by people like you. When people say, if you make this change, I will go, that's a blackmailing statement. And I think that that has to be either gently or firmly pointed out. That we are in, we're together in the church, not because we all agree with each other, but because God has called together people who are unlikes. That's the church. Jesus didn't get all his disciples from a seminary. He got them from, one from a civil servant's desk, four from fishing boats, possibly a student from somewhere else. We don't know, really. But he brings these unlikes together who will not agree with each other. You know, Peter didn't agree with Paul all the time. That's not the issue. The issue is that these, those of us who are not like each other should model to the rest of the world how we deal with our differences. 
And if somebody wants to walk away because I don't like this, well, they have to be told, you will never get the perfect church. And if you do, it will be more like the temple of Satan than the church of Jesus Christ because Jesus never had a perfect church. So we shouldn't expect anything more. So, I mean, I don't think that, you know, perhaps the words that my uh, senior pastor used are, are perhaps applicable everywhere. But I think people should be pointed out, we don't blackmail each other and we do deal with difference. And it might just be in dealing with difference that we become, as the two men who I mentioned previously, who listen to each other in a close conversation, it's there perhaps that our encounter with each other will allow us to hold our differences without animosity. Time for Person there? I could probably do without the in the past, we've dealt with the uh, Catholic-Protestant uh, division. I think the next challenge for the church is the Christian-Muslim. How do you think we, we should go about that? It's a very good question. I'll be the last one because we're coming up to two. Uh, There's a question which people in my uh, area have had to ask because I live in a multicultural area. And people in Glasgow were thinking, um, you know, what's happening? We've got, we've got a mosque and an old church hall, and are the Muslims taking over? What nobody ever asked was, what would Jesus do? And it's not a question which is impossible to ask, because if we go through the Gospels, we find that there are seven different nationalities, at least, with whom Jesus engages. He goes with his mother and father to Egypt, which is the land from which is the land of the enemy. That's the land from which Moses delivered the people. And Egypt was not a friend to the prophets. They derailed, they, they, they derided Egypt several times. But he goes there and receives hospitality. When he comes back, he uh, finds that he has Syrian people who want to come and listen to him as he preaches. And there's one Syrian woman who asks him to alter his language and not to call her people dogs. He engages with Greeks who are brought to him by Andrew, for which reason Andrew becomes the patron saint of Scotland. Doesn't seem logical, <laughs> but that's, that's what happens. He, has, uh, he meets people who are Romans. And we tend to think the Romans all came from Rome, but the Roman army at that time was about 240,000 strong. And wherever the Roman army was present, if somebody volunteered to enter the army, as long as they swore that they would pay homage to the emperor, they could become a soldier. So Jesus has a centurion at his death and a centurion whose servant he cures. And the possibility is that they came from different countries. They could have come from Turkey. They could have come from Greece. They could have come from Portugal or Spain or Germany or France or Belgium. They would speak Latin. The only person who tries to stop the crucifixion is not a Jew. She is another Roman and she's the wife of Pilate. When he goes to the cross, it's an African who comes from Libya Simon of Cyrene, who carries the cross. When you look at Jesus' encounters with these people, he never chastises them. He never says to them that what they believe is wrong. Oh, we forgot about the Samaritans, of which the woman at the well 
has the longest conversation recorded between Jesus and anyone else. And she's the one who's the first evangelist. She brings a whole village, a woman who's not a Jew. And then he sees in the Jewish leper who is cured and comes back to say thank you, a model of gratitude he cannot see in the Jewish lepers whom he cured. Every time he engages with people who are not of his culture, there's no judgment. But people are, I think the word would be wooed, wooed into faith by his winsomeness. We don't know that all those of other cultures became Christian. We cannot say that. But we do know that Jesus didn't see a barrier between them and himself. And I think that when we're dealing with people who are Muslims, who, whose God, although under a different name, is found in the Hebrew Scriptures, and if we acknowledge that there's more about Mary in the Quran than there is in the Bible, then it may be that it's not a matter of judging others or trying necessarily to convert those who are Muslim but to enter into a kind of reciprocal conversation which allows us to honour each other's moral seriousness and spiritual depth. And from that might come some transformation. I was in a church in Canada uh, just two years ago, about this time of year, and I was sitting at the front, I was going to preach. The service begins and the pastor in this church said, oh, oh, I think we've got guests. We've got guests. Come in, come in. So I didn't turn around. Other people turned around. And then he said, no, come in, come in, come in. So down to the front come these children dressed in at least 10 different kinds of national costume. And they are all Muslim. And behind them come the imam from the local mosque and the president of the mosque. And president comes forward and says this is Ramadan, it's the end of our fasting season and we wanted to come here to say to you thank you because when a mosque in Montreal was burned down you supported us, you prayed for us, you came and visited us so now at the end of Ramadan we want to say thank you, so we've got some things for you, here's this huge cake which the mosque had uh, made and a lot of pastries from different parts of the world. And after he had presented these, he said to the congregation, now, I know what you came here to do, so now do it and God bless you. Now, that seemed to me to be a measure of the kind of honouring of each other which, is, which we have to establish before we criticise or enter into conversation. Friends, I want to thank the people who have brought me here, a Reverend Martin of the Uniting Church who has brought me several times to Australia and who's also responsible for me doing the earliest Bible study in my life. He says it was seven o'clock, but I remember it as half past six. <laughs> and Father Perry of this church for enabling this to happen and to the congregation for making this such a hospitable and friendly place to be. God bless you all. Thank you, John. Thank you. I know uh, today certainly has enriched and deepened our uh, own conversation in, in our congregation here. I pray.